Good morning. Good to see you all here. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. For Samuel 1.16. Mission conference coming this coming Saturday. Catered dinner that starts at 6. Sign up sheet on the helps board. That's the one right outside of that door. Uh, with all sign up today. I, I have to call the caterer tomorrow. Pastor Birch will be our guest speaker. Uh, and the ladies are asked to sign up for making desserts. Studies in the Confession, taught by Jared, uh, 9.30. Again, uh, come out and be with us. It's a great time of discussion as we ponder some deep things. Choir rehearsal tonight at 5, and then the evening study at 6 in the Fellowship Hall. Men's Bible study, Tuesday at 10 at McLeod's. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. See the note there about Samaritan's Purse. And we want to thank the uh, group who decorated uh, for the mission conference. You can see that we're ready to go on that. All right. Anything I've missed this morning? You did note your pledge card in your bulletin. If you didn't get one, it fell out on the floor somewhere. There's a bunch more here in the pew, so... Consider what you'll be doing this coming year. Fill that out and drop it in the offering box. Oh, posters too. Posters too. Go ahead, because I don't just, know. Just we need the missions conference posters before this weekend, so so we can. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Scripture for meditation then, uh, Luke. The first chapter, read 5 through 20.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Tom, can I ask you today? Thanks. Take your brown hymnal and turn to number 43, number 43 in your brown hymnal.
question. I have a default who picked last week, but I told her that she had to wait until I found if there was anyone else. Doctor had had his hand up last week. All right, go ahead, Marcy. It's in the purple. Woo, in the purple. We have a little purple book that's behind the hymnals. Looks like this. They look like they've been through the war, but they don't get used a whole lot. It's number 246 in the purple book. Do you have a reason for this one, Marcy? I know that it's my oldest son's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to do the Yeah, you can do the Thank you. 
scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Samuel, the first chapter, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 18. Let's stand as we read. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not worth to you more than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Get out your red hymnals, please, and turn to page 87. Number 87, in the red. Eight, seven.
Our scripture text this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 1. In our series, Believers Under Trial, I have been dealing with some introductory messages. And last week we learned some of the biblical reasons for suffering. To want to know is not wrong, so long as our inquiries show respect and honor for God, not accusations. In fact, God invites us as his people to reason with him. Even so, saying that, you can only know what God wants you to know and not what he withholds. We sometimes have more questions than God is willing to answer. That was the case with Job. That should be okay with us because God always has our best interests at heart. We don't need to know all the intricacies of his decisions. We need to trust him. That's where faith comes in. But we did list some reasoning behind God's trials. Number one, to prove God true and Satan a liar. Because God is waging a war in the heavenlies against the evil one for the souls of men. Secondly, we have trials to advance our sanctification. Paul's thorn in the flesh was designed by God to keep him from becoming conceited. This is his words, not mine, because of the many revelations he was receiving. So he understood that the trial was for his spiritual good. Thirdly, trials come our way to teach in the school of hard knocks what we have refused to learn in the school of biblical instruction due to our own sin, problems of that nature. So the Lord sends us trials to kind of, it's kind of like a wake-up call. And then fourthly, we learn that all trials that we endure are to bring glory uh, to God. Because God expects us by his spirit to be able to endure the trial, to, to not lose our faith and our hope in Christ, and in so doing, demonstrate to the watching world that there's something more important than just complaining about trials, but to see in the trials the hand of Almighty God. Now beginning today, I want to start to address the specifics of those things that bring hurt into our lives and how God has healing for them. Today I'm going to talk about hurting mothers, but I do have a message coming uh, later on hurting fathers. So as we come to God's word, let us seek his presence. Our Father, we thank you for your word and ask that your blessings would be upon it by the Holy Spirit. We talk about mothers today. We need to also think about ourselves and the day in which we live and the hurt that is so prevalent in our society. Much of it caused by our own sin. So I pray that you will help us. I pray that you will point us to the answer of the solution, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is always the answer. And I pray that you will give us that understanding. Send also your spirit of salvation on those who are yet searching 
and yet have not found, Lord, may you find them today by your Spirit. For your glory, their good, we pray these things. Amen. We're looking this morning at the subject of hurting mothers. We're looking at this whole thing of, of the trials that we face in life. And this is one of them. And I turn your attention, according to the bulletin outline there, to the first mother, our mother. And I am referring, of course, uh, to the hurt and as it all began with Mother Eve. She, being deceived by the evil one, disobeyed God's command to abstain from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it is not that Eve did not know the prohibition of God, although she misstated it to the serpent in answer to his question. We read, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Genesis 3, verse 2 and 3. God did say, so you see, that's what, those are her words. She, she did understand the prohibition of God. God did say. But then she added, oh, you must not touch it. God never said anything about touching the tree. But you know what this is? This, this is her conscience guiding her with what I call good conclusions. Her conscience was saying, you know, since God has forbidden you to eat from this special tree, it would be wise for you to stay away from it, lest a look might lead to a touch and a touch might lead to a taste. This is good reasoning on her part. It's the old adage that comes down through the years, don't play with fire or you're likely to get burned. I mean, why is it that curiosity killed the cat? It's because the cat just could not resist being so nosy, so inquisitive, that he just had to investigate for himself that bare wire dangling from the electrical pole. In coming to the New Testament, we learn how Eve's sin came about and how her sin is distinguished from Adam's. Paul, in the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy, instructs his protege on church government, and this is what he says. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now, he's talking about the church here, you know. He's not talking about necessarily in the home and the camaraderie that goes between husband and wife. He's talking about in the church situation, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For, here now, here's the reasoning. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14. Genesis is the book of beginnings. But it has tentacles that are far-reaching, even into the church age. And here Paul bases his reasoning on why women are not to be pastors and elders in the local church on two historical facts, both dating from the time of Genesis, the original creation. 
Fact number one, Adam was first created, then Eve. So the question comes, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You see, first has to do with priority. It has to do with protocol. It has to do with seniority. We even have that in our day. Feminists might like to reword the question, which came first, the chick or the egghead? thus implying that the practicality of women's thinking is far superior to the play-by-the-ruler's rules, which seems to characterize men. But in God's domain, being first is given much weight. It's an appeal to the historical reality. By the way, inspiration of Scripture covers concepts as well as the words chosen. Fact two, Eve was deceived by the evil one and became a sinner. She knew God's prohibition, we just read it. She understood the command, but then the serpent came along and he sweetened the prohibition by suggesting that to disobey God was the way to become wise like God. And then secondly, that she would not die from such disobedience. Well, Eve bought into the lie, and she ate. By the way, we learn here that being tricked into a sin does not exonerate you. If you're smart enough to know right from wrong, to know what God requires of you, then saying, but he tricked me, but she tricked me, will not make the wrong right. Eve was tricked, but she had all the same resources and information Adam had. What a shocker when she discovered that God's word was true and the servant was a bold-faced liar, but it was too late. So Paul concluded on biblical grounds why women may not act as pastoral leaders. Adam was created first, Eve second. Eve was first to sin, and in that sin she was deceived. What did God do when Eve disobeyed his command? Well, he pronounced this curse on her and her posterity. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth. With pain you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Genesis 3, verse 16. Here's where the pain of childbirth has its roots. Jesus put it this way. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. John 16, verse 21. Isaiah talks about the distress of Israel, the nation, when ravaged by its enemies. And what does he use as the symbol. Let me read it for you. Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely whisper a prayer. As a woman with child and about to give birth, rise and cries out in her pain, so were we in, our, in your presence, O Lord. We were with child. We writhed with pain. But we gave birth to wind. We had not brought salvation to the earth, 
We have not given birth to the people of the world. Isaiah 26, verse 26, or verse 16 through 18. Jeremiah similarly speaks. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see. Can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, every face turned deathly pale? How awful that day will be. None will be like it. Talking about Judgment Day. It'll be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through 7. Throughout the scripture, God uses labor pains as symbolic of trouble and judgment. Secondly, the marriage mandate is a family mandate. Some fearful would-be mothers have read the Genesis curse on Eve, and they have concluded, I know what I'll do. I, I, I just will not have any children. That's what I'm going to do. Well, their solution is against the cultural mandate given to both Adam and then later to Noah, which was this. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, the sea, the birds, the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1, verse 28. And also found in Genesis 9, and verse 7. You know, this is our command, surely, as abstaining from the forbidden fruit was Adam and Eve's command. Jesus had the godly solution to the curse. Here's what he said. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. John 16, verse 21. And Paul picked up on Jesus' words when he said, Women will be saved through childbirth if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 15. Planned Parenthood has used the lie of population explosion to convince women not to reproduce or, if pregnant, not to carry their baby to full term. Scope's watchdog website, which tracks crackpot assertions, affirms what a number of mathematicians have calculated, namely that the entire, listen, the entire world population, which is now about 8 billion people, could fit into the state of Texas with each person living in a 1,000 square foot house, each person, not each family. So a family of four, that would be a 4,000 foot square home, leaving the remaining real estate of the world for farms to grow food, factories to produce clothing, and other necessities of life. And that's a far cry from overpopulation. So the pain of having children, the solution is that God will be with Christian mothers in a special way for their faith, 
their love, and their holiness. We cannot forget God's commendation of Abraham and his wife. He says, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what's right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Genesis 18, verse 19. And what was the promise to Abraham? That from Abraham, great nations would arise. Well, that can't happen without children. And so God blessed Abraham and his marriage with Sarai. Solomon writes, The righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are the children, blessed are, excuse me, blessed are his children after him. Proverbs 20, verse 7. Where do we get most of the godly offspring that populates the nations? From Christian homes. Christian moms and dads having children. And then their children coming to know Christ as Savior. Now secondly, what are the pains of motherhood? And what are evidences of God's gracious care? Well, I list in your bulletin the pain of having no children. There's a pain of that. Obviously, this is a different kind of pain mothers experience. This is not physical pain. This is emotional pain. We've just learned that there are, could be mothers who want no children, but now consider that there are would-be mothers who can't have children for a variety of reasons. Our text brings before us the account of Hannah, of whom we read, verse 6, the Lord had closed her womb. But think for a moment of all the women referenced in the Bible who were childless, because the Lord did not allow them to conceive. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Manoah's wife, that's Samson's mother. Again, Hannah, Michael, Saul's daughter, Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, New Testament, mother of John the Baptist, and so on. Sometimes the closing of the womb was a judgment by God, as in the case of King Abimelech, who had conscripted Abraham's wife Sarah for his harem and would have taken her as his wife had God not acted. We read, For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife Sarah. Genesis 20, verse 18. The fact that he pleaded ignorance <laughs> and that Abraham had deceived him bade well for God reversing the judgment, which is exactly what happened. In our feminist movement age, in which women often put careers before raising a family, we do not always think of the social and spiritual turmoil experienced by Bible time women, whose great desire was to provide a male heir for her husband. Actually, Rachel became desperate. We read, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Well, what was he to say to that? Genesis 30, verse 1. Jacob answered in verse 2, 
Jacob became angry with her. He said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? You mean you're laying this on my shoulders? You're blaming me? What is the solution for women who would like to have children but can't? Well, in every incident, with the exception of Michael, Saul's daughter, God answered the prayers of these families and proved the promise. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. Proverbs 127, verse 3. We've seen this in our own family, how God has blessed our daughters with children that they never thought they could have. Others have gone the adoption route, mimicking, may I say, God's own way for building his family. Let me read it for you. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Ephesians 1, verse 5 and 6. There is the pain of having no children. Secondly, there's the pain of losing a child through miscarriage or abortion. I've heard doctors say of mothers who have miscarried something like this. Well, the body has this uh, natural sense of intelligence so that when it senses something wrong with the baby the body will expel the child. Now that's supposed to ease the pain of losing a child. But it is a professional answer to a mother's trauma that is deeply unsatisfying, to say the least. You see, a bonding takes place between mother and child, which many men cannot relate to. I'm not saying that a husband cannot grieve over a lost child, but too many times the pragmatic answer kicks in, well, honey, you know, we can always have another. That's the way men think. We can always have another? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Sometimes a miscarriage is indicative of the body's inability to carry a child to term, and it cannot be corrected through medical science. It just is. Many couples become discouraged of trying for some time to have a child, and nothing but multiple miscarriages occur. A miscarriage is truly an unplanned ending of a pregnancy. Donna and I had that in Arkansas when we were going to school. She had two miscarriages. <laughs> Dr. Lemon said to Donna, when did you have your abortion? She just about jumped off the table. An abortion, she said. I've never had an abortion. Well, then his second question was this. When did you have a severe miscarriage? Ah, 
Well, that's why she was there, to see him. So they're very, very similar physiologically. What about the termination of a pregnancy through abortion? Picture a 16-year-old teen who got pregnant by her boyfriend and her parents and her boyfriend talked her into an abortion because they could only see this child as something that would complicate her life. Or picture a career woman unsaved at the time who bought into the lie of Planned Parenthood that an abortion would be the best way to advance your career. No one told her that she might become sterile as a result. No one told her that she would likely develop breast cancer in later life. What is the solution for the pain of both miscarriages and abortion? I'm grouping them together because both have to do with the loss of a child, one through natural causes, one through sinful actions. What about that? Well, you know, God has a word. He has a word about that. You, you would think, would, does God have something to say about this? Read your Bible, folks. God has a word to say about everything that comes your way in life. I am referring, in this case, to Ezekiel addressing the concerns of Christian mothers who might ask the question, Where is my lost child? What has become of him? What has become of her? Ezekiel, quoting God, says this. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. What's he talking about? He's talking about an aborted child that wasn't wanted. Only he's referring here to Jerusalem, his people. He goes on. Then I passed by and I saw you. I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live! Live! I made you grow like a plant of the field, and you grew up and developed, and you became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed, and your hair grew, and you who were naked and bare. And later I passed by you, and when... When I looked at you, I saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you. In other words, he took her as his wife. The story of Boaz and Ruth talks about the very thing. Boaz throws his garment over Ruth in the, in the granary. 
And in, in saying to her, I'd like to marry you, say that's a strange way to make a proposal. Yeah, but that, that was the biblical way. He goes on, I gave you my solemn oath and I entered into a covenant with you. Marriage declares the sovereign Lord and you became mine. You became mine. I bathed you with water. I washed the blood from you. I put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress. And I put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen. I covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms, a necklace around your neck, and a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, olive oil. You became a very, very beautiful, and you rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you, because it made you perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Ezekiel 16, verses 4 and following. Now, while all this is dealing with Jerusalem as God's bride, I don't want you to miss the obvious in the symbolism. God has a heart for the miscarried and the aborted child of the world. Those who for no fault of their own, were either underdeveloped and something went wrong with the pregnancy and so the mother lost the baby, or through poor counsel, selfish ambition, frustration, fear of lack of funds, a mother decides to end her pregnancy through abortion. Well, the result's the same. God comes along, he steps in, and he rescues that dead or dying child. He picks it up. He washes its wounds. He applies appropriate medicine for healing. And then, and then, wonder of wonders, he adopts that child into his family and raises it as his own. Conception, brethren, creates a soul. It creates a soul that lives on. God's love snatches that child from the trauma of miscarriage or abortion and makes it a part of his own family.
It's loved and adopted. And any mother here today whose child was lost to such things will see that child again. If she herself is a believer in the giver of life, the Savior of eternal life, Jesus Christ. What a glorious, glorious healing to a very hurtful pain. Even if a child is lost to the judgment of God for sin, as in the case of David's adultery with Bathsheba, David could stop his weeping and his fasting and he could get up off the floor. He could wash his face, assured of this. While the child was still alive, I fasted, I wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And then four words, the Lord loved him. Solomon, the Lord loved him. You find all of that in Second Samuel 12, verses 22 and following. So what I'm saying, either miscarriage or, or abortion, the result is the same. That child is adopted by Almighty God. A soul was created in that conception. And there remains great glory for those that know the Lord. May I say great reunion. Then thirdly, there's the pain of a wayward child or grandchild who makes wrong decisions. Boy, the world's full of that. The Bible family of Isaac and Rebekah could be called by psychologists of our day a dysfunctional family. <laughs> the biblical answer is that they were a family fraught with parental sin. Rebekah had born Isaac twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob was a mama's boy. He loved to hang around the house, cook meals, converse on various subjects, and care for the garden. Esau was his daddy's boy because he loved to hunt and fish and do all those things Mr. Macho types loved to do. And as a bonus, he would bring home venison, which Isaac loved. And so it isn't surprising for us to read Genesis 25, verse 28. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And I have to ask the question, Whatever happened to loving both boys equally and appreciating their gifts and skills as the Lord had enabled them? Well, sin blossomed in the form of jealousy, in the form of one-upmanship, in the form of deceit, in the form of outright rebellion and hatred. You know the story. Paul talks about it in the New Testament. Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that the purpose of God's election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, 
Oh, the older will serve the younger. Romans 10, Romans 9, verses 10 through 12. That was contrary to patriarchal protocol. Jacob was to become the family head, although he was the younger of the two boys. This was fine with Rebecca, uh, not so fine with Isaac. So Isaac planned to disobey God's wishes and bestow the family blessing on Esau, family headship. And Rebecca thought, well, God needs a little help here carrying out his plan. And so she plotted with Jacob to trick blind Isaac into bestowing the birthright on him. And it worked. God allowed it to work. But we read Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to him, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Genesis 27, verse 41. Well, he never got the chance. Rebekah convinced Isaac to send Jacob to her brother's house in a distant land. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padan Aran to take a wife from there and that he, when blessing him, had commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Ishmaelite women in addition to the wives he already had, which were, by the way, Hittite women. In Genesis 28, verses 6 through 9, and verse 35 says, they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah, these women. Sometimes our children in their adult status reflect the sin they saw in the home and they make poor decisions. Esau, despite his parents, married the very women who aggravated his parents because of their wicked and idolatrous lifestyles. Jacob fled the scene, happy to have slipped through his brother's vengeful hands. He had been a deceiver all of his life. That's what the name Jacob means. And he met his match in Laban's house, Rebekah's brother, when Laban tricked him into marrying Leah. After many years, God instructed him to leave Laban and return home. Oh, yeah, but home is where Esau was. Hmm. So God appeared to him and wrestled with him and stripped him of his pride and changed his name, and may I say changed his nature from Dezephor, Jacob, to Israel, Prince of God. He had no way of knowing how his meeting with Esau would turn out, but we read Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, and he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Genesis 33, verse 4. God's promise to restore Jacob and protect him had come true. Jacob had learned not to be a cheat, not to be a deceiver, not to place his hope in his own wits, 
or in his acquired wealth. So there he set up an altar, and he called the altar El Elohe Israel, the mighty God of Israel. Genesis 33, verse 20. Rebecca had died before Jacob returned home. Her mother's hope was nonetheless fulfilled. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you and you come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Genesis 27 verse 45. Those were her last words. But it was a wish. It was a prayer. And the prayer came true. Jacob came home. And he was reconciled with his brother. And then fourthly, there is the pain of a loveless marriage. While Jacob was in Laban's house, he fell in love with his youngest daughter, Rachel. He worked out a barter. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Genesis 29, verse 20. In other words, he was love-struck, we would say. Wedding day came. Laban, his father-in-law, father did a switcheroo on him, substituting Leah. Her name means weak-eyed. He substituted Leah for beautiful Rachel, and Jacob ended up married to the wrong woman. What was Laban teaching? Jacob. He was teaching him the right of the firstborn. It's not right for me to give Rachel away before Leah is married. So what did he do? He worked another seven years to acquire Rachel. And the scripture says, Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Genesis 29, verse 30. And when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Chapter 29, verse 31. That whole rivalry between Leah and Rachel began, each vying with the other over who would capture Jacob's love, each giving their maids to Jacob as concubines or lesser wives when they stopped bearing. Was Rachel from the beginning could not bear children. Jacob's 12 sons were a combination of the concubines' offspring and that of Leah, and eventually Rachel, of whom the Bible says, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb, but she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. And she named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. And God did answer that prayer too. She died giving birth, however, to Benjamin, a second son. Genesis 30. Verse 22 and following. 
Long story short, Jacob moved back to Palestine. He settled down with his family. And in his old age, in his own impending death, he gathered his family. He says, I am about to be gathered to my people, which is a biblical way of saying, I'm about ready to die. I'm, I'm almost there. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, which Abraham bought as a burial place. There, Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, were buried. And there, I buried Leah. Whoa, did I read that right? There, I buried Leah. Genesis 49, verse 29 and following. What about Rachel? Where is she? She's buried too. She's under a tree somewhere. Where did Jacob choose his final resting place? By the side of Leah. The weak-eyed, unattractive, love-starved wife had become the love of his life. He chose to be buried by her. What I'm saying here is that every believer has the potential to be changed by God's Spirit. We can learn to love. We can learn to respect. We can learn to abandon selfishness and self-interest. We can learn how to live for others. We can learn how to glorify God by becoming the husband or the wife or the child or the parent that is patterned after God. This is the power of the gospel. A changed life. A righteous life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to go on being the sinner that you are. Whatever you are today that is sinful and wrong. Whatever you are today that makes life miserable for you. Remember that God calls you to change and to become like his beloved son. Hurting mothers find solace in God's grace, as do we all. We all need God's grace. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth of it. Forgive us those times when we've relied upon our sinful selves to try to figure out our problems, to gain peace of life, peace of family, joy, celebration, all of those things which the world holds up in a primary way without any thought of God. But Lord, let us learn that our peace and joy and celebration is found firstly and foremost in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. 
May we be honored to think that God calls us to peace. And how does he do that? Through adoption, bringing us into his family, through Jesus Christ, making us one of his own, and loving us despite our sin, cleansing us from our sin. And as we read in Ezekiel, making a a crown princess out of an aborted child. Oh God, how gracious you are. Bless thy word to our heart. Be with hurting mothers today. Be with hurting fathers. Be with us sinners who often don't handle our sin in a proper way and so we hurt. But I pray that you will bless the truths of your word to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. That's the red hymnal. And we'll sing together 719. Seven one nine in Trinity, let's stand together as we sing.
Isn't that a great hymn? Wow. It's a great family hymn. And you notice the way it's worded. It's a prayer. It's a prayer. The hymn writer is praying that God would grant him that type of home. That's what we need for our own families as well. Well, tonight I remind you of our Bible study in the basement. That's at 6 o'clock. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. We're in John 15. So come out. We bring finger foods. We share the food, share the fellowship, and learn the Bible together. We're dismissed. Thank you. Thank you.